0: Our Father, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a word from David for you. He wanted to say something to you. He said, just tell him, remind him that I love him and that I'm praying for him. Kind of sounds like him, doesn't it? I'm going to read to you from several passages And for sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but I'll just mention the address if you want to make a note of it. The first passage is the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. In Matthew 4, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, the Bible says that no one spoke like this man. There was a time after Jesus started his public ministry that the Pharisees were very upset with him because his words condemned them because they were really against God and and the Messiah like they should not have been. And they were so upset with him that they told the officers of the temple to go and capture him, to arrest him. And then when the officers came back to the Pharisees, they said, why have you not brought him? And the officers of the temple said, no man ever ever spoke like this man. We couldn't arrest him because of his words. As we consider the words of the Lord Jesus today in a particular passage, would you please ask yourself two questions? I asked myself these questions several times as I studied for this message this morning. The first question is, what do his words mean to me personally? And then secondly, do I need to make any changes? What do his words mean to me personally? Do I need to make any changes? This is Jesus speaking. He said in Luke 16, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, and he was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So it was that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. I apologize. Did I tell you this is Luke 16? Okay, I guess I did. Verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, we know, was raised from the dead. And many, many people in this world do not believe in him. Some people who study the Bible say that what I've just read to you is a parable. In other words, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, a fictional story with a heavenly meaning. But I believe it's not a fictional story. I personally believe that it's an actual account of a real event in the history of Israel. Now, why do I believe that? Well, first of all, Jesus doesn't say it's a parable. That's the number one reason. Furthermore, he does something he never does in any parable he taught. He mentions specific names. He said he was a certain rich man and a certain beggar named Lazarus. And then, like in Luke 7, when the centurion came to him and said, Heal my servant. It says a certain centurion's servant was sick and ready to die. And then also in this parable, or what people say is a parable, but I believe is a real story, two historical figures are named, Abraham and Moses. So I believe this is an actual true-to-life account of what actually happened to two men before and shortly after they died. Now this account is of two vastly different men. One was very wealthy, one was a crippled beggar. You couldn't find men so different as these two men. It'd be hard to find two that were any more different than these. Let's think about the rich man for a moment. Jesus said he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple clothes in the time of Jesus were very expensive. It seems that it was a special dye that had to be extracted from a certain kind of snail. Can you imagine that? They extracted dye from snails. They had to gather a lot of snails to extract much dye. So when they made purple garments, they were very expensive. Well, this man had purple clothes, so he was really up there. Today, he would have cashmere clothes and silk pajamas. This was the kind of guy he was. And Jesus said he fared sumptuously every day. If you look up the word sumptuously in the dictionary, it says entailing great expense, choice materials, fine work, as in a sumptuous residence or a sumptuous feast. It means luxuriously fine, lavish, splendid. In other words, this man lived large. If he were living today, he'd have steak and eggs for breakfast, he'd have lobster for lunch, and prime rib for dinner. This man knew what it was to live large. He even had a wall around his house, and there was a gate there to keep out riffraff like Lazarus. Now, what about Lazarus in comparison? He was a poor man, and he was about as poor as a man could be. David spoke on this passage uh, several years ago, and I remember he said that Lazarus was so poor that he couldn't even pay attention. (laughs) Sounds like David, doesn't it? It said that he evidently he was crippled because he was laid at the gate. It didn't say he would lie down at the gate. It said he was laid at the gate. So it seems like he was a crippled man who had to be laid by others at the gate of the rich man where he would hope to get something to eat. And it says his body was full of sores, and dogs licked these sores. Can you imagine? He was too poor for medicine and for clean clothes. He had to beg for everything he got. He was cold in the winter, hot in the summer, and I think hungry all the time. This was Lazarus. However, there was a great difference that was greater than any of these between these two men. The rich man loved gold and the things it could bring to him. Lazarus loved God. The rich man had rejected the Messiah that was promised to Israel. And Lazarus believed in him with all of his heart that he was the Messiah that was to come. How do we know this? Because of what Jesus said later. He said that after they died, they went to two vastly different destinations. And he describes these deaths and their destinations in verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torment in Hades he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. What in the world is the bosom of Abraham? Well, bosom is a place of comfort. Imagine a baby in the bosom of his mother. It's a place of comfort for the baby. And the place of comfort for the Old Testament saints who could not yet go into the presence of God uh, after they died. Because Jesus had not been raised yet from the dead. He hadn't died and hadn't been raised from the dead. So God sent them to a special place, a place of comfort. And he called it Abraham's bosom. Now, why Abraham? Do you remember God appeared to Abraham personally and said, Abraham, from your seed, from your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And it's from your seed, singular. In other words, a descendant of yours would bless all the nations of the earth. And that seed would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So they went to the, the Old Testament saints went to the bosom of Abraham. Let's remember the day of the resurrection. Do you remember when Jesus was raised from the dead? And the women went to the tomb? And at some point in time, one of the women approached Jesus. They saw him. And Jesus said, don't touch me. For I have not yet ascended to your God and to my God. I have not yet ascended. But just a little bit later, he appeared to 11 apostles in a room. And Thomas had said, unless I touch his side and feel the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe that he is raised from the dead. So Jesus appeared to the 11 apostles in that room, Judas being absent. And he said, Thomas, come here and touch me. Now he said to the woman at the tomb, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended. He said to Thomas, touch me and see that I am he. So what happened in the meantime? Well, I believe it's clear that Jesus went to the bosom of Abraham and took all of those Old Testament saints and took them out into the presence of God. And now the Apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you're a Christian this morning, when you breathe your last breath, you will not go to a place called the bosom of Abraham. You're going to go directly into the presence of God Himself. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you wonder about the funerals of these two men? Do you ever, have you, since you've been a Christian, wondered about what kind of funerals they must have had? Well, I wonder about things like that, so (laughs) let me tell you what I thought. (laughs) All right, let's think about the the funeral of the rich man. Well, we know for sure that there was no question that the rich man had a magnificent funeral. The rich people in those days really put it on when it came to funerals. They tended to hire people, professional mourners, They wanted people to cry over their coffins and make a big deal out of the fact that they had died. They would even hire orators to make great speeches about how great they were in life and to give flowery eulogies at the graveside. They would be buried in a wonderful tomb, a tomb that would be engraved with thoughts from the rich man. And they would speak about the great achievements, how great this rich man really was. Uh, the bodies of the rich would be embalmed in the most expensive spices that money could buy and they'd be wrapped in the finest linen and be placed in a costly coffin and placed in a very costly tomb-like grave. Now while all of this was going on, the rich man's body was wrapped up in that finery. The rich man was in hell. How about Lazarus? My guess is he had no funeral. We don't know this for sure, but I I believe he probably did not have a funeral. He was probably placed in a simple shroud and laid in a grave where paupers were buried. Now, while Lazarus' sore-ridden body was laid in a pauper's grave, he was praising God in the bosom of Abraham. Our text says he was in a place where he was being comforted. He was hungry no more. He was dining at God's table. He was sick no more, permanently healed by the Great Physician. He was poor no more. He was homeless no more. He was alone no more. He was now in the fellowship with a vast number of God's people. How do I know this? In the book of Hebrews, it says that we are encompassed about by a great cloud of witnesses, people who had gone on before us before the resurrection of Christ, who believed in the Messiah that was to come. There he was with all of those people, not only with Abraham, but with people like Moses and Elijah and all of those people, names we don't know. I can't help but think about this. When I think of Lazarus and this funeral he must have had buried in a simple shroud, I can't help but think of a fine Christian woman by the name of Vicky. A few years ago, uh, with the permission of the elders here, I went to San Jose to be on staff there for a couple of years to help a young pastor by the name of Mike McClure. Well, one Sunday when he had asked me to speak for him, after the message was over, I was standing on the platform and people were coming up for prayer. And this woman that I had known for a few years by the name of Vicky came up on the platform and said she needed to talk to me in private. I noticed that Vicky had on a wig. And I had not heard, but I didn't realize it, but Vicki had had cancer for some time. And I said, well, Vicki, how are you doing? I'm so sorry to see, you know, how you feel and how you look today. And she said, Pastor, she said, the doctor has given me a death sentence. She said, I have just a few weeks to live. If he's right, I have just a few weeks and she said, I, I, don't, I haven't known Mike very long, but would you be kind enough to do my funeral? And I said, of course I'll do it. Well, I was able to visit her in her home and watch her. She, she did. We prayed our hearts out for her that God would save her, but it wasn't his choice to do that. So she died. And she gave me a letter. She said, now I want you to open this. I have some very specific requests. I opened the letter, and in that it said, My husband has lost his job. We don't have much money. I can't afford a very expensive funeral. I don't want him to hawk the house or do anything like that to pay for my funeral. So I found a, a, uh, a, a, uh, what would you call it, a cemetery north of San Francisco that will allow me to be buried without a coffin. I'll just be in a shroud. I'll be at the bottom of the grave. And would you say some words over me? Would you bring the funeral, please? I said, okay. Well, sure enough that day, I drove through the Golden Gate and above San Francisco and went to that, i had never been to that cemetery before, but I guess they gave special permission. And her family was gathered around the graveside and I looked down that six foot or so hole and there she was in a white shroud, just a shroud, and her poor body was there inside that shroud. And I read the scriptures and we prayed together and I felt a tremendous sense of peace because I knew where Vicky was. And I have an idea that that's what Lazarus was buried in a shroud just like that. Now let's take a look at the prayers that the rich man made from hell. Now, first of all, he prayed to the wrong guy. He prayed to Abraham. And he it seems like he just didn't know better. But anyway, there he is in hell, and he... There's a great gulf fixed between the bosom of Abraham and where the saved were. And he could see Abraham, but he couldn't go to be with Abraham. So it says in verse uh, 22, I believe it, 24, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame." And look at Abraham's answer in verse twenty six. He says, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So there's his answer. No one can go from this place where the saints are to where you are. Now, the next thing he says is, I want you to send him to my brothers. I want to save, I want my brothers to be saved. Look at uh, verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, let me ask you a question. Was this rich man interested in saving his brothers when he was alive? Probably not. Is there a lesson in there for us today? That we should be concerned about people while we are alive? While we have time to talk to them? Abraham's answer was, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him then. Then we have another prayer, verse 30. Then he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And how many people in this, on this earth believe that he is the Messiah? Has How about you today, this morning? Has Jesus persuaded you that he is the Messiah? Are you going to heaven? If not, you certainly can... Make that decision today. Let's learn some lessons from the rich man's prayer. There's a great reminder here in his prayer that we need to reach others while we are alive. In Hebrews 9 it says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. There's nothing we can do after people die. So this is the time to pray. This is the time to tell others about the gospel. I spoke to a young man last week, and he was wondering what God would have him do for his life. I said, well, I'm not sure what he wants you to do with your life, but I know what he wants you to do every day, and that is to tell as many as you can about the gospel of Christ. So be a faithful witness. Whatever you wind up doing with your life, be a faithful witness. Do you have loved ones or friends that aren't yet saved? This is our time to do something about it. May God help us all. This is my prayer as I prepare this message. I said, "Lord, help us to be the kind of church that, we, that where we will wake up every morning and ask you to make us better witnesses than we have been." Remember this it's too late to pray after you die. You know there are two places where prayer is unnecessary: in heaven and in hell. In heaven, prayer is not needed. In hell, prayer is not heeded. It's not listened to. Hell is a place of hopelessness. If you've heard of the name Bernard Baruch, he called helpless the saddest word in the English language. We don't know in this world what it's like to have no hope. Think about it. If you're sick, there's always the hope that you might get better. We're certainly praying for David to get better. In business, if your business is bad, there's always the hope that the economy will turn around and your business will get better. I know there are several businesses represented in this auditorium today that they need for their business to get better. And if I know about it, I'm praying for you and I hope all of you will pray for everyone whose business is hurting this morning or who is out of a job. Even a condemned man on death row has hope. He could be pardoned, there could be a stay of execution, Or perhaps he could escape. So there is some hope, even when you're on death row. But in hell, there is no hope. Maybe some of you who studied a thing called Dante's Inferno remember that there was a door in his poem, The Inferno. And on the door, it says, you who enter here leave all hope behind. And that, of course, is a story about hell. There is no hope in hell. Now why did Jesus tell us this account of these two very different people? I think first of all he wants us to realize that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Second, if you are not yet a Christian you don't have to go to hell. The choice is entirely up to you. Not too long ago I read a magazine, Time magazine, which did a feature on Billy Graham. I think it was two or three years ago. And the whole essence of and it was several pages in that magazine with Billy on the front cover. Several pages gave over to the fact that Billy Graham was not only a minister worldwide and has spoken to billions of people and over 200 million people making decisions for Christ over a period of years, but he ministered to five presidents. He was the personal preacher, you might say, to five presidents, to, beginning with Harry Truman, And uh, two of those presidents asked him the same question over and over. Eisenhower and Lyndon Johnson kept asking the same question every time he met with them. And this question was, how can I be sure that I am going to heaven? Can you imagine that? President Eisenhower, President Lyndon Johnson, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? That's a good question for all of us to ask and be sure of, isn't it? Everyone has this decision to make before they die. You have no choice after you die. Listen to the, before I get into that, there's something that I found out later. After Lyndon Johnson retired and went to his ranch in Texas, and I guess that ranch is not all that far from President Bush's ranch, but anyway, they were walking, Billy Graham and he were driving around the ranch in Lyndon Johnson's Cadillac convertible. And uh, he asked Billy that question again. How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? Billy said, why don't you pull over here? They pulled over, and Billy opened his Bible, and he led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ right in that convertible. So we're going to see Lyndon Johnson in heaven. Now, you know, Lyndon in his early years, he was a rascal. He was not a good man. But, you know, Jesus came to save bad men. And if, if he didn't save bad men, who would be, who would be saved? Amen. There is none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. not one. Listen to the words of a lost soul like the rich man. Loved ones will weep over my silent face, dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Shadows and darkness will fill the place five minutes after I die. Faces that sorrow I will not see. Voices that murmur will not reach me, but where, oh where, will my soul be five minutes after I die? Never to repair the good I lack, fixed to the goal of my chosen track, no room to repent, no turning back five minutes after I die. Mated forever with my chosen prong, long as eternity, oh so long, then woe is me if my soul is wrong five minutes after I die. Now, these words do not have to be yours. I'm reminded of something I read some years ago. One of the last large uh, crusades that Billy Graham held just a few years ago was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now, by this time, Franklin, his son, was traveling with him and bringing some of the messages. Well, when Franklin's turn came to preach in Halifax... He told this story. He said, when I was a young boy, he said, my dad took the family here to Halifax for a vacation. He said, I visited the famous Halifax Maritime Museum, and I learned things about the Titanic that I never knew. It seems that the Titanic was warned twice not to sail into the icy waters of the North Atlantic because there were reports of giant icebergs drifting in those waters. But the Titanic was going to, was bound and determined to make their maiden voyage into those waters because they felt that the Titanic was unsinkable. It was such a mighty craft. It was, it was uh, christened in 1912. Against advice of everybody, the Titanic sailed, and shortly before midnight on April the 14th, 1912, four days into their maiden voyage the Titanic hit an iceberg and sank in two hours and 40 minutes. It was on the 15th of April, 1912. The sinking resulted in the deaths of 1,517 mostly men of the 2,223 people on board, making it the deadliest peacetime maritime disaster in history up until that time. The high casualty rate was due in part to the fact that even though they complied with the regulations of the time, the ship did not carry enough lifeboats for everyone on board. They were so sure the ship would not sink. The ship had a total lifeboat capacity of 1,178 people, even though her maximum capacity was 3,500, and there were 2,200 people on board. Now, after the ship started sinking, the captain of the ship sang, this is the following protocol. Women and children will be placed first in the lifeboats, men later. If there's any room left, then the men will be placed. And as a result of that, 1,500 men died. There may have been some women. And there was one man who dressed up like a woman and got into the lifeboat because he wanted to save his hide. How shameful. How shameful. The Titanic was designed by some of the most experienced engineers and used some of the most advanced technology available at the time. It was popularly believed by engineers and by the crew that the Titanic was unsinkable. They were not worried about icebergs. When the Titanic radioed back that they were sinking, two large ships set out. One from Halifax and one from New York City. The ship from Halifax brought back those who had been saved from the icy waters. The ship from New York brought back the bodies of those who had perished. Then Franklin said, there are two ships in life. One ship goes to heaven and one ship goes to hell. He said, you here in Halifax, you get on the ship that will take you to heaven. The rich man took the ship that sailed to hell. Lazarus got on the ship. That leads to heaven. He got on the gospel ship. 52 years ago this month, I was born again. I was 22 years old. And if you add fast, I'm 74. (laughs) Anyway, I got to know a very fine youth pastor who was four years older than me. I thought he was an old guy, he was 26. Dan Olander. And Dan said, Johnny, I would like, he was a youth pastor of a large church some distance from where I was attending church. And he invited Ola and me, this was before we were married, to a retreat. It was a one-night retreat. It was a bonfire. It was a college-age group, like the group that's sitting back there. And um, I was in college at the time. And I went and they had a bonfire, and he said it was a testimony service. And I said, what in the world is that, a testimony service? And it was the Christian young people giving testimony of how they were converted or things God had led them through and how God had helped them. And I'll never forget one young man who had a magnificent voice. I didn't realize he had a magnificent voice until he started singing. He said, but I want to sing a song for my testimony. And he sang a song called Ship Ahoy. And it's like this, these two ships. He, he, is, he sang this song. I, I'm, not, I'm going to spare you and not sing it. <laughs> but these are the words of that song. I was drifting away on life's pitiless sea. The angry waves threatened my ruin to be. When away at my side there I dimly descried a stately old vessel, and loudly I cried, Ship ahoy, ship ahoy, and loudly I cried, Ship ahoy. Twas the old ship of Zion thus sailing along. All aboard her seemed joyous. I heard their sweet song, and their captain's kind ear ever ready to hear, caught my wail of distress as I cried out in fear, ship ahoy, ship ahoy, as I cried out in fear, ship ahoy. The good captain commanded a boat to be Lord, and with tender compassion he took me on board. And I'm singing today, all my sins washed away in the blood of my Savior, and now I can say, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, and now I can say, bless the Lord. And in the final stanza of the song, he sang, "O soul sinking down, Neath sin's merciless wave, The strong arm of our captain is mighty to save, So trust him today, no longer delay, Board the old ship of Zion, Sing and shout on your way, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Sing and shout on your way, Jesus saves. And these words can be your gospel ship to heaven. In Romans 10, verse 9 through 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised from the the dead, you shall be saved. You know, we have a great treasure to share with others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Peter's words to the lame man, remember in the temple, when the beggar said, wanted alms, Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then, of course, I'm sure he shared with him the gospel, and I, I believe that we will see that man in heaven just like the other lame man. I hope you will pray this prayer sometime today and pray it for the rest of your life. Lord, help me to remember the Great Commission every day. What is the Great Commission? In Matthew chapter 28 it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. The most important thing that we can do in this world, the most important thing that we can keep on doing until someday we see our Savior's face, is to do what he said, to tell people about him. I admonish myself and I admonish you, my brothers and sisters, pray for the people that God brings across your path. Pray for their souls. Pray for God to help you share the gospel with them. Pray for God to give you boldness and not to be ashamed of the gospel. Let's not wait until we attend the funeral of those we love and those we know to think about how very much they need the gospel right now. Ask God to help you be faithful to the Great Commission. And then ask God to make our church a church that keeps caring for people and keeps caring whether people are going to heaven or not. And then caring enough to tell them the good news about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, as we sing this last song, Help us to remember what you want us to remember from these words this morning. We thank you that you are such a God of love, that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son. We read in your word that it pleased you to bruise him. This is amazing to us, that it pleased you to bruise your only son for our sins. It, It gives us an idea of how much you love us. Oh, God, help us to love others the way you love us. Help us to keep the two greatest commandments, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And then help us to keep the second one as well, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship God.